The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Moon Madness and Extreme Competence in Dangerous Situations, Van Name and Weisskopf discuss the Heinleinization of reality as we know it. Tarzan Call a Devilish Opera and Wiggly Jiggly Frogwater, plus Swords Tree Cats Science Fiction Horror Stories, and Part 28 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now! Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. Coming up, we have the second of our Robert A. Heinlein roundtables. This time we are discussing Bain's reissue of two Heinlein classics in one volume. Those are The Man Who Sold the Moon and Orphans of the Sky. They're both in a trade paperback format now. This book is at booksellers everywhere right now. Uh, on the roundtable is Mark L. Van Name who wrote a very interesting and, and moving afterwards to this edition of the of the Man Who Sold the Moon and Orphans of the Sky. Mark is, of course, the creator of the John and Lobo science fiction adventure series, with the latest entry being No Going Back. Also along are Tony Weisskopf, Bain publisher and my boss, and Bain editor emeritus Hank Davis. So, stay impotted for that. It's coming up. And, of course, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. But first, Bain Associate Editor Laura Haywood Corey and Bain Consulting Editor David F. Sherryrad join me for the news. October is going to be full of new treats for you if you like Bain books. Here's a preview from Bain Associate Editor and Good Witch of the East, Laura Haywood Corey, and... Uh, what the heck is your gonna your appellation gonna be, you dude? Call me Bain Guy we pulled editor. off the street. Yeah, but you can call me whatever you want. Yeah, Bain Consulting Editor and and uh, wannabe Oz, David F. Sherrad. So, Laura, can you give us a rundown of of some of the titles that are new for October? We have Eye of Newt and Tongue of Frog, or oh no, wait, wrong list. <laughs> <laughs> We have five new titles coming out in October. The first is 1636, The Devil's Opera by Eric Flint and David Carrico. This is an interesting one in the Ring of Fire series that takes place in the United States of Europe city of Magdeburg. And so we also have Tree Cat Wars by David Weber and Jane Linscold. This is book three in the Star Kingdom Young Adult series featuring an ancestor of Honor Harrington. Although they're Stephanie. really meant for adults as well. Yes, yeah. that's Stephanie Harrington. We yeah. also have Swords of Exodus by Larry Correa and Mike Coopery. This is the sequel to Dead Six, and it's military adventure, lots of fun. And we've got some uh, story anthologies coming out. Uh, the, we've got Worlds of Edgar Rice Burroughs, which was edited by Mike Resnick and Robert T. Garcia. This is all new stories set in the milieus that Burroughs created. We've got Tarzan. There's John Carter's Mars, or should I say Barsoom, Carson's Venus. There's a Mucker story and lots more, including some hybrids in it. Uh, and then finally, for all you boils and ghouls, just in time uh -huh. for Halloween, we've got In Space, No One Can Hear You Scream. And uh, Tony, you have a story in this, I think, right? Uh, yep, I do. It's one of the only uh, science fiction horror stories I've ever written. Uh, it's about a little girl who gets abducted by a very nasty alien and but who may have a chance to turn the tables on our captor. 
and the title's Frogwater. And why it's called that becomes evident in the story. Incidentally, this collection has original stories and classic reprints, and it's edited by Hank Davis, Bain Editor Emeritus, by the way. It's got a new story by Sarah Hoyt, and the first story in a long time by Bain Editor Emeritus Hank Davis himself. Um, Hank was a... Uh, was quite a prolific writer back in the late 60s and early 70s. He had a bunch of stories published and out. Uh, but then he grew silent like J.D. Salinger. But now he's back. He's written. He hasn't been writing for a while. Now he's back with a, a really good new story. Oh, I would add about all these October titles, by the way. We're going to try to cover each one on the podcast. We have upcoming podcasts with Eric Flint, David Carrico, David Weber, and Jane Lenskold, Larry Correa, and Mike Cooper. Pari is how I think you say it, although we're going to ask Mike about that, as well as Mike Resnick and a couple of contributors to that ERB collection, Edgar Iceborough's collection. Uh, that one will be hosted by you, David. That's right. Yeah, David used to be a grad student of yours, didn't he, Tony? He did. He certainly did. And, and after we washed him out of the program, uh, no, I taught David everything he knows. Uh, David, you will also be hosting the uh, the pod on In Space No One Can Hear You Scream, which will include Hank Davis, me, and Sarah Hoyt. Yeah, that's right. That'll be uh, just in time for Halloween, I believe. So those are the podcasts we have coming up, and they match the books. And it's gonna. It, there are more podcasts than there are weeks in October, so I'm not sure how we'll get them all in. Yep, it's scary how many good things we have in store for everyone. You can check out the October schedule. And all of the upcoming Bain books at Bain.com, and it's all at booksellers now. Woo, scary fun! Robert A. Heinlein did not burst forth from the head of Zeus, a science fiction writer. After growing up in Kansas City, Missouri, Heinlein followed his brother's pathway and got an appointment to the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, where in 1921 he graduated 20th in a class of 243. After serving as a gunnery officer on the first U.S. aircraft carrier, he came down with tuberculosis and was cashiered from active duty by the Navy. Thrown out of a career at 27, a career to which he'd expected to devote his life, and sick with tuberculosis, the young Heinlein spent the next five years reinventing himself through trial and error. What worked was science fiction. Heinlein found his catalyst in John W. Campbell, the editor of Astounding Science Fiction magazine. Campbell was looking for a break from the implausible science fantasy beginnings of science fiction, and Heinlein provided it. His stories were believable, adult, and filled with everyman heroes who could, who could have been the engineers, administrators, and knowledge-based workers who were beginning to form the majority in the modern Western world. From the start of the 1940s and into the 1950s, Heinlein produced the short stories and novellas contained in The Man Who Sold the Moon and Orphans of the Sky, most of them for Campbell and Astounding. These are the classic Heinlein short stories that are still held up as exemplars of the era. Stories such as The Roads Must Roll, uh, which I taught frequently in my literature class, uh, my literature of science fiction class uh, at the University of Texas at Dallas, as well as the classic title story, The Man Who Sold the Moon and the Lyrical Requiem. Furthermore, Orphans of the Sky, with its two related novellas, really a, an entire book, is the prototype of the generation ship tale virtually a science fiction genre in itself these days, where the inhabitants of a large ship on a millennia-long voyage to the stars lose the past or their memory of it and begin to take the ship for the whole world. 
This month, Bain has released a new combination volume of The Man Who Sold the Moon and Orphans of the Sky in trade paperback. For the first time, the moon stories are arranged in, in the order in which they occur in Heinlein's future history. Campbell's introductory essay in the original edition and Heinlein's introduction from a later edition are both present, as well as an introduction by William H. Patterson, the writer of a very well-done biography of Heinlein, and he was a guest on the podcast before in another Heinlein roundtable we did, and an all-new afterward by science fiction writer Mark L. Van Name. Mark Van Name is with us to discuss The Man Who Sold the Moon today. Hi, Mark. Hey, Tony. Also here is Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf, who has initiated a reissue of many Heinlein books by Bain with all new cover art, introductions, and afterwards. Hi, Tony. Hello, everybody. So, put down that wrench. This is the famous opening to the Heinlein story, Blow Ups Happen, which some have argued is kind of the archetype for a Heinlein opening sentence. Mark, uh, in your afterward, you talk about how many Heinlein stories have a protagonist uh, that's the ultra-competent man. Can you elaborate on what you meant by that? Yeah, I, in, reading, in reading Heinlein, I, I've come to believe, uh, and in rereading, that Heinlein was somebody who admired competence and admired personal commitment and drive. Heinlein is frequently somebody we think of as writing just uh, adventure stories or early prototypes, but I think he actually was a very passionate man, and what he wrote about is what obsessed him at the time, like most writers. And I think part of that really became for him the man who could do it all. The, uh, he, you know, he's written famously about uh, a man should be able to do brain surgery and solve mathematical equations and on and on. And in many, many of his stories, the protagonist is someone who is extremely good at the particular things that are relevant to the story. And, and he particularly favored uh, engineers, scientists, and those kinds of characters, although not exclusively by any means. Yeah, it seems like he, even in life, his, his wife, Virginia, second wife, was he viewed as this ultra-competent person as well. Tony, do you have anything, uh, any thoughts on that? I think he, he had uh, certainly a number of women characters who um, were ultra-competent. I mean, I think of the Rolling Stones and, and the wife there, who was a very good doctor, um, and, of course, the grandmother, Hazel, who was uh, not only the best babysitter they could get, but also um, a revolutionary when she was a child, and um, I believe she was an engineer as well. So um, he, he certainly has ultra-competent women as well as ultra-competent men, and I don't know if he... he he, um, you know, consciously modeled it on the women he knew, but he certainly did know women who were, um, the, these were not fantasy creatures that he came up with. Um, he knew the people who were like this. Yeah, maybe we should, uh, we should examine and just get out of the way the, uh, the Heinlein is an old fogey, uh, sexist fellow. Uh, Mark, you talk about that a little bit in your afterwards, um, or how do we read Heinlein today? Do we have to deal with that or not? Um, Tony seems to think maybe not. Well, I I think unavoidably stories by any author in a certain period of time tend to reflect societal norms. And in some ways, Heinlein was ahead but in, uh, of his time, but in other ways, he was very much in line with his norms. And the norms, these stories, most of which were written in the 40s, um, do contain a fair amount of sexism and uh, the occasional racism uh, evidence. And I think that we, as we do with any writer of 
uh, particular era have to take that writer in the context of the era. You're not going to find the same norms of today in somebody writing that long ago. I mean, that was now quite a long time ago. And getting longer every day, it seems. <laughs> at, yeah. at least to those of a certain age. Um, it seems to me that it, often uh, the, the, the accusations of sexism in particular, it's, it's the characters who are making the comments, and they come from the characters and not necessarily from Heinlein himself. He seemed to be a very forward-looking fellow in, in his actual life, at least what I read in Patterson's biography and what I've read other places. It may be a false charge, uh, to me it seems like, I was just going to say that I think that um, what uh, some people interpret as sexism or want to see as sexism uh, can also be interpreted as a very deep knowledge of human nature um, and an understanding of sociobiology. So I I don't think Heinlein shied away from um, uncomfortable truths, um, but I also don't think he he was a slave to them. He was an independent thinker. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about let's. Depends on when you talk about Heinlein. Heinlein wrote for a long time, and what era of him you focus on is is going to tell you a different story each time. I mean, early Heinlein is a man in the forties. By the time he's writing some of the books in the sixties, he's a very different person. He's grown and changed. Yeah, very true. Yeah, he uh, he he went from uh, it, I mean he wrote a seminal book that influenced the '60s in uh, Stranger in a Strange Land. Very different fellow, uh, very different uh, audience at least. The same guy uh, than who was maybe reading it in the in the in the '40s when he broke on the scene. Well, let's talk about D.D. Harriman, the main character in The Man Who Sold the Moon. He's a he's a hard-headed businessman as well as or including being an orchestrator, a manipulator, a mountebank. Um but he's not trying to sell the public a bill of goods that that won't be delivered. He's not a a fake. He's trying to condition the public for an advance he know will be good for humanity, namely the colonization of the moon, which is what the story's about. Um not colonizing him but trying to get it off the ground to do so. Um, Harriman's a bit of an engineer, but he admits that one of his greatest strengths is the ability to leave the technical details to those more gifted, like his chief engineer, Andrew Ferguson. Um, how does he fit into the ultra-competent man idea, or does he? Who is, what is this kind of uh, Heinlein character? Harriman, to me, is the embodiment of, of something that I think is a pers- pervasive theme in a great deal of Heinlein's work, and that is that the greatest advances, the most important things, happen from the actions of passionate, committed individuals. And Harriman is an extraordinarily competent man at manipulating large groups of people to his goals. And that is a particular kind of competence that not everyone has. Harriman knows with absolute certainty that humankind needs to go to the moon. And that knowledge, his drive and his abilities make that happen. He doesn't build a rocket ship. He doesn't get to go the first time. He doesn't always play fair. When I read him as a child, I just saw him as this heroic figure who was doing the right thing because I was also so convinced we should go to the moon and, and still am. But when I reread him later, I realized, wow, this guy would break any rule, do whatever it took to make it happen, defy laws, 
blackmail. It didn't matter. But I think that Heinlein's worldview, it takes these deeply committed individuals who are willing to break a few eggs, uh, break a few laws to, to make things happen. And so Harriman was an extremely competent man at persuasion, persuasion and at um, making groups do things that he wanted. And in Heinlein's view, because the truth he knew was so powerfully true, uh, and, and the people can know truths that prove not to be true, but Harriman, I think, in Heinlein's view, was on the right track. It was okay. In the end, it was okay because just talking about Harriman as a competent man, I, I think he was a classic Heinlein competent man. He was just competent at a certain set of things and, and not at others. And, and he was, remember, somebody who was rich from his inventions. He came up with great ideas, but he was smart enough to leave implementation to people who were super competent at that. I mean, throughout the story, he picks the best people for the job. Uh, he is a guy who loves confidence and who knows what he's good at and what he's not good at. Yeah, I mean, we see him actually, you know, tossing off inventive ideas in the course of the story. So we see him actually being competent at in inventing as well as manipulating people. And I think that helps us respect him. Yeah, I mean, he's a guy who got there by doing some things, and now what he's trying to do is work on a very grand scale, I mean, he's trying to do something that it took, you know, Kennedy and the marshalling the nation's spirit uh, through the space race to make happen. And in a, in a way, um, you, you can make a good case for the space race as being not dissimilar to the land scheme of what Harriman came up with. It was a, something to motivate people to get behind this enormous endeavor. Yeah, Harriman is kind of a combat because he lets people fool themselves. Like with the diamonds that uh, he insisted on, uh, he, he, the pilot had a bag of diamonds, and all the reporters saw them uh, once the moon rocket returned. And he said, "No, no, guys, those uh, those didn't come from the moon. I, I, I sent them along as a test, but they don't believe it." They're really fooling themselves. <laughs> that just means he's a good content. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also, it turns out the diamonds are for the moon. They're not the ones that the pilot was given. He found diamonds on the moon. Another little joke I'd like to put in. Yeah, there's two uh, two twists to that that he's uh, that he's he's getting across the thing. Sting, it's like two yeah. stings within uh, within one sting. With that, he also, I mean, in the in the story, he, he talks about multi-stage rockets and catapulting rockets, which is something that, I mean, these are things that people are still talking about and considering, and it's the way we got there. Um, as a matter of fact, it's amazing. Uh, I mean, he was also accurate. He was also accurate in predicting that the government program would go nowhere. I mean, our our, our government program got a little bit farther than than what he thought it would, but um, we got to the moon a few times and then stopped. Um, and you know, all the exciting things are happening um, uh, with private industry at this point. And if we ever get back to the moon, it's going to be that way, I think. Um, so, so he was really prescient, um, not only in the technological aspects, but also in the uh, the political aspects. I would argue that what he had going on there was a, a fundamental understanding of economics, which is that in any mm -hmm. kind of capitalist world, the government can take you for a while 
But ultimately, if something's going to be an ongoing enterprise, people have to make money from it because otherwise mm-hmm. we will go somewhere else they are making money. And this very basic understanding is, is amazingly lacking in a lot of uh, thinking, but it certainly wasn't in his. Uh, his uh, his Harriman is very good at figuring out um, what other people want. Um, he figures out um, how to uh, manipulate uh, the soda manufacturers um, into um, paying to not advertise on the moon. <laughs> Uh, that's just you know that's that, that's just you know brilliant uh, manipulation of uh, of seeing what it is that people want for their specific businesses. Yeah, the best selling and the best con men uh, are con people are doing the same thing, which is they are trying to correctly align everyone's self interest because conning is not stealing. By plucking, it's stealing by persuading someone to give, and so he and so is a lot of selling. You're persuading someone to give you whatever it is you want from them, and the very best deals are deals where everyone gets something they want, and the, to make that happen, you have to understand what they wanted. Harriman was extraordinarily good, as you said, at knowing what people want and finding a way to align what he wanted with what they wanted. And we should mention, too, that um, in uh, Mark's series, um, the John and Lobo saga, he uh, a, a con man plays a very large part. Um, was he inspired by Harriman, yeah, Slanted Jack, or, uh, or, or or not not consciously? Uh, Slanted Jack was actually um, – came from two places. One, I, I absolutely love con men, con stories, uh, movies like The Sting I've read tons of books on cons. It's entirely possible that at some points in my career I might have, you know, been persuasive in, in special ways. And I uh, I really love uh, stainless steel wrap. And if you look at uh, Slanted Jack's name, it's, uh, and the name of uh, the, the stainless steel wrap, they're actually just, uh, I stole the name and swapped syllables. Uh, instead of DeGriz, instead of Jim DeGriz, it's uh, Jack Radiz. Ah, okay. An <laughs> homage. We didn't know uh, that. Oh. A, a PhD thesis topic. That's <laughs> one of these. Back, what I did was I took the, the model of this thing, and instead of having two sides I had to resolve, I created three parties and gave myself the challenge of writing a con that would lead them all to field aid one so that the con man could get away, but in fact, none of them went. Or, or at least all to bring, to come together at the same point for a moment to feel like they win before they realize they've all been taken. And that's how the book sorts out. It was a convoluted plotting exercise. Yeah. But fun. <laughs> well, that's the, I mean, that's the wonderful moment of all, um, all grifter con stories is when, when it, you realize that even you as the reader have been a bit taken in by it. The rest of the uh, the rest of the stories in the collection also turn around. I mean, there's a lot of discussion of economics and business in this whole collection. A lot of them are just basically, uh, you know, this is what the characters are concerned with. Um, the light story. Uh, what's the title of that one, Hank? Uh, Let uh, there be light. Let there be light. Yes. <laughs> For instance, I mean, this is a this is an exercise in talking about um, the economics of of bringing a new innovation into the marketplace. 
And it's where Heinlein foresaw high-efficiency solar panels, which is pretty cool. And sort of lasers, too. I mean, <laughs> there's... We saw later uh, full-spectrum uh, light receptor, full-spectrum energy receptor panels, which we really aren't quite to, uh, but it was pretty cool stuff for the, for the time. Yeah. But if, I, if I could put in a plug for our book, I, I would bet you that Let There Be Light is a story that was left out of the Pass Through Tomorrow. So if anybody out there has the Pass Through Tomorrow and thinks you don't need to buy our book, you need to buy our book. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, it's a great story. Um, uh, the one thing that all the stories in this collection have in common is Heinlein's sort of visceral loathing for bureaucracy and, and middle management, both of in government form and in business form. Um, obviously, this resonates with our modern experience, you know, the Kafkaesque world. But uh, during World War II, Heinlein was dealing with his own fight against these sorts of, of folks. He wanted desperately to re-enter the Navy, for instance, to fight. But his own past, he worked for Upton Sinclair uh, for governor campaign out in California in his younger days. And he wrote a a rather ill-considered letter to a local newspaper that sounded uh, socialist and red, although it really wasn't, if you read it carefully. But he ended up uh, not being able to get back in the Navy, and he ended up working as a civilian middle manager himself at the uh, Philadelphia Navy Yard, where he famously arranged to employ uh, science fiction writers L. Sprague de Camp and Isaac Asimov. I guess what I want to go go from here is is how much Heinlein's villains are straightforward misguided or evil uh, or evil bureaucrats and how much they represent uh, maybe Heinlein's own sort of inner conflict. I know Tony might not like this <laughs> in a technological age. I mean, he was he was a bureaucrat at that at, during the war. Um, and, you know, and he was also the heroic freedom lover at different moments in in his life. And and we are in that situation a lot in modern life. Um so what's your take on Heinlein's uh, hero's continual fight against misguided rules and rulers of society anyway? Well, just, just, just one, one, one point um, uh, that, that, that I think mitigates against um, this thesis is that uh, uh, in The Man Who Sold the Moon, uh, we have a very competent engineer, Coster, who gets bogged down when he tries to become an administrator. And the way that Harriman solves this problem is to give him an administrator to free him up um, to, do, uh, to do the engineering that he needs to do. So in this case, uh, the Jock Berkeley character um, you know, comes in, clears the decks, makes things happen. And so, so he's recognizing that a middle manager can do that and can be useful. Now, that said, I think he, a, a lot of his villains are, in fact, um, um, uh, evil leeches um, uh, on, the, uh, uh, on the productive people of society. Mark, do you, do you agree with that? Well, yeah, I, I think it's a, a complex thing. I think there is something to what Tony Daniel, uh, two Tonys on the call, uh, requires that, uh, said in that I think from letter evidence and uh, commentary and some of the suggestions in the biography that Heinlein was unhappy with himself for not being able to do what he had wanted to do and at some level felt um, conflict and, and a sense of failure because he didn't get to do that. Um, and I, But I think you're right. He, he showed that a competent administrator, a competent organizer is an incredibly valuable person. But remember that that story was written in like 1950, 
51. And if you look at the earlier stories, which are the bulk of the man who sold the moon, written more in the early 40s, I think there his anger at uh, bureaucrats is more um, profound. And I think he's acquired from some time doing it probably and seeing the value of people who organize. He's acquired a different perspective by the time he writes The Man Who Sold the Moon. One thing that I argued in my afterward that I really strongly believe is that part of the power that Heinlein brought to his fiction is that when he was writing, like many of his characters, he was totally committed to what he was doing. He was certain. He was passionate. He was telling the story that he wanted to tell the way he wanted to tell it. And so whatever feelings he had naturally came through powerfully. And I think that's part of what makes us as readers uh, still find power there. You know, I read those stories uh, several times in preparation for the afterward, read those two books. And certainly there are parts that are dated, but fundamentally these stand up. And these stories still possess a power and an energy and a, a, a narrative uh, certainty that persists in the face of authorial choices that are often initially odd, like skipping over, I mentioned this in the afterward, skipping over uh, great action scenes in favor of relentlessly pursuing the vision of the story. So I think in the earlier stories he was mad, and uh, mad at the bureaucrats who denied him his chance to be in the military, mad at himself for feeling like a failure. And then I think he, as he saw the wisdom of it, by the time he wrote The Man Who Sold the Moon, he understood that there was value from those groups. Now, Mark, I'd like to get to the heart of your afterward uh, to the book, which is your own very personal response to Heinlein when you were a kid. Um, this is really, it was pretty heartbreaking stuff and also inspiring. Uh, can you relate the story of how, in your own words, the man who sold the moon helped save my life? When I was about 10 years old, my most recent father died. Uh, and so my mother was left as the single mother of three children, uh, ages 10, 8, and 2. She was a nurse. Um, she was a wreck uh, from this man having died, and, and he committed suicide. It was kind of an accidental suicide, but he still did commit suicide. And so she was casting about for a way to survive, as single mothers do. And uh, she was not a high-earning single mother. She was, you know, as I said, a nurse. A friend of hers was an LPN uh, at the hospital where she worked, and that woman was a, a mother of seven with a father in Vietnam. And something I didn't put in the afterward that's kind of amusing is he was in Vietnam for years when he could have come home because he turned out to have another wife with five more children in California, and he needed the combat pay to keep them all going. <laughs> Lord. So uh, to say that their relationship wasn't the best, that's a completely true story. So what happened uh, is that they hatched, the two women hatched this scheme that the families would move in together. That was So there were 10 kids and two grown women. Uh, the other woman would stay home and make food and run the house because she made a lot less money, and my mother would work because uh, child care was not a big thing then, particularly in our income bracket. And this left us in what the government uh, charitably, charitably called uh, upper lower class. So we were, as I've later come to see it, uh, we were just had just enough money that we had a house and uh, enough food to eat, although it was crappy food. But I had friends who you know didn't have enough food, for example. 
The thing my mother didn't know was that this woman was an abuse victim, and she passed it on. And so shortly after we moved in together, she began beating me every day. Um, and that went on for about four years. And she would beat me at least once a day, every single day, with um, different things. She was very, very good at not leaving marks. So she would use coat hangers on the body, the flaps of shoes across the face, um, Hands were a big favorite to the body, and just beat her frustrations out. Now, at the same time as this was going on, my mother decided I needed some male influence in my life, so she entered me into this youth group that was run um, by uh, some Marines, and they were... Uh, Big believers, uh, this particular chapter, the organization as a whole, I have no arguments with, but this particular chapter was run by relatively recent uh, former Marines, and although you're never really a former Marine, you're always a Marine, but uh, they were very big on physical disciplines. So the, as I stole from my real life in a story called Basic Training that's been in uh, a Bain anthology and one other anthology, uh, on my first day there, the drill commander was a sergeant uh, home from Vietnam heading back, and he made fun of me until I was 10 years old, until I cried, and then he punched me in the stomach, uh, and I threw up, and he knocked me down and ground my face in my own vomit uh, while making fun of me in front of everybody. And I was not um, the wisest child. And so in both the case of the beating and in the case of the youth group, I fought all the time. I screamed back, I fought back, and that led to more beatings. And so after about a year of this, when I was uh, 11-something, I don't remember exactly when this was, I was considering killing myself because there just wasn't much for me. I started working right after I turned 10 to help. Uh, pay for groceries and uh, school clothes and stuff like that, and I mowed yards. Uh, so it was in Florida. It was working in the summer, and Florida's hot most of the time. And so by the time I was 11, I was working uh, basically full-time in the summers. By the time I was 13, I was mowing 42 yards a week, working uh, 6.30 a.m. to 7.30 p.m., six days a week. And so my life didn't hold a lot of promise, and I had an AM radio and I had books. I, I would hide money I had made and, and get used books at a bookstore called Haslam's on Central Avenue in St. Pete. And I'd walk down a couple of miles to it. And one of the books I picked up, uh, which I uh, still have, I got for a song, is The, the Man Who Sold the Moon, the, the Shaft to Hardcover, in great shape. And... I read that story, and that story made me realize that I didn't have to give up. You know, Harriman, in my young mind, was a man who could have given up. He fought all the odds. He was his own hero. He did what needed to happen when nobody else believed in it, and he ultimately carried through. My sister and my brother were now getting beaten daily as well. And I looked at the woman, who was a large woman, and I looked at the men around me, and I realized that 
in time, in some years, I would be bigger than she was. And when I was, I would be able to stop her, just physically stop her. And it really, as I wrote in the afterward, it came down for me to this basic choice. Was I going to be the guy who quit? Or was I going to be like Dee Dee Harriman and no matter what, keep going? And I decided that uh, if he could do it, I could do it. Because he didn't, you know, he was smart. I was smart. He possessed no other particular skills. He could talk. I could talk. And so I went to the woman and I persuaded her to beat me extra instead of my uh, brother and sister. I went to the youth group and found out that if I could learn to shut up to a certain rank from corporal onward, that everything was done by testing, which was very much my world. And so I took a lot of beatings. I gritted my teeth. I told myself I wouldn't give her the satisfaction of seeing me cry, and I never did again. I told myself that at the group, and I fought harder, and I got in good shape, and I shut my mouth. And when I was 13, I was the highest-ranking member of that group in the state of Florida. And when I was 14 and she went to hit me, I stopped her with one arm. I pushed it down. I grabbed hold of her throat, and I choked her till she was blue, and I told her she was never going to touch my brother or sister or me again, or I was going to kill her. And she agreed, and I let her go. Uh, that was a hard moment, actually, letting her go. Huh. And mm -hmm. then I moved on with life. And so, to me, very literally, that book has had that special place my whole life. And when I, Tony will, Tony Weisskopf will tell you that when I heard about the time reissues in Denver, I ran up to her and I said, "You've got to let me have Man Who Sold the Moon. I will do it for free. I'll do whatever you want. You've got to let me have that book." And she said, "Okay." Uh, and let me have that book. And I uh, I feel like this is a, a tiny bit of uh, pay forward for Heinlein for giving me a story that gave me the, the courage to keep going. Wow. That's a, that is a hell of a story, Mark. Um, Tony, what was your first contact with Heinlein's work? Um, I hope it wasn't quite in such dire circumstances as Mark's. That was, that's something I'd never wish on any child. No, no, not at all. It was it was far more benign. I had a I had a golden childhood um, for the most part, and um, um, I, uh, I realize. Um, how lucky I was uh, for that. Um, my dad is a scientist. He's an astrophysicist, um, and uh, he's a science fiction reader. Um, when he would go to uh, uh, test his rockets in White Sands, he would come back with analogs and, um, and uh, fantasy and science fiction magazines, and he had a very good collection of paperback um, science fiction, including Andre Norton and including um, uh, a lot, a lot of Heinlein. Um, so my first exposure to Heinlein was, in fact, the short stories of the past through tomorrow, um, the Green Hills of Earth and the Man Who Sold the Moon and um, uh, the Menace from Earth and and uh, all of those stories um, were, were my uh, my first uh, exposure to him, which is good because my for the first novel of Heinlein's that I read was uh, I Will Fear No Evil, um, which 
is arguably his worst novel. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it can only go up. Uh, so it was a good thing that I knew that he could do do other things. Although at the time that I read I Will Fear No Evil, I was, uh, I don't know, about 12 or 13 and, and uh, saw absolutely nothing wrong with it. So, um, but, uh, but, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I felt, um, uh, some of the same spirit that, um, Mark got from, uh, from these stories and that, and that you, that you tend to get from, from almost all of Heinlein is that feeling of uplift, that feeling that you can do it. Um, you know, not, not just that, you know, someone can do it, but that you can do it. Um, and, and that's uh, priceless. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I've mentioned this before, but I, I like to. Uh, my first uh, encounter, I was reading A Stranger in a Strange Land. That was the first timeline I, I ran into. And uh, my high school librarian literally ripped it from my hands and uh, told me that I was, wait, <laughs> I was not old enough to be reading this. Um, and she took it off the shelves. Her, her son had just read it and he, he, did, he didn't like it or something. So, uh, I went down to the, uh, to the county library and checked it out again just to finish the dang thing. And, uh, after that I was, I was, I was hooked and in it. Uh, and it, it really, uh, you know, it's, it's a modern way of, of, it's a way of thinking about philosophy that even the philosophers don't engage in anymore. Uh, Heinlein gets you to thinking about so many, so many different things. Hank, do you have a Heinlein encounter? Uh, well, with, with Heinlein, I played hard to get. Uh, as the first Heinlein I read, I think, was in a paperback called Invasion for Bars, supposedly edited by Orson Welles, probably edited by somebody else, uh, which had the Green Hills of Earth. And I thought that was an okay story, but uh, not much happened in it, which shows you where I was when I was uh, probably 11 or 12. And the first Heinlein novel I read was Double Star, which, again, held my interest. But I was thinking, uh, it's all about a politician. I'm not interested in politicians. By that time, I was maybe 13. <laughs> uh, but then the next year for the book club came The Door of the Summer. And maybe I was older, or maybe that's just Heinlein at its peak. But after that, I was a Heinleinaholic. Door in the Summer was your... Door of the summer. That, uh, was, that, that was the tipping point. Well, let's uh, let's get back uh, another one more question about Heinlein's work. Um, the future history. He sort of invented. He didn't invent um, setting the idea of a setting that um, a series of stories are set in. This has been done by a lot of writers before him. Um, but uh, he brought it to science fiction to such an extent that it's really hard to write a series without making a, a future history up. Uh, Mark, you've you've written. You're a series writer. Uh, your John and Lobo stories follow a definite timeline. Your characters develop uh, develop a cruise over the course of the novels. Um, how much did uh, did the idea of this timeline? In, it, was it secondhand, firsthand? Do you say I'm going to make a timeline like Heinlein's, or did it just uh, sort of uh, seep into the work because it, it needed to? Well, I had been a short story writer and decided to write a book, and I realized that. A lot of what I loved reading were series uh, that, you know, I, I remember when uh, John D. McDonald died and there were going to be no more Travis McGee books, I, I practically went into mourning, even though the, the books near the end had gotten kind of weak. And people like, I'm not saying all books should be, and I, I certainly plan to write some standalones, but I, people really like, they, 
fall in love with characters and things that continue. And, and I realized that it would be fun to explore characters over a period of time. And I had always loved and been fascinated by Heinlein's Future History, which was my first exposure to that notion. In that book, in The Man Who Sold the Moon, where in the Shasta edition he talks about making the chart to keep stories uh, intact in for himself. And I thought, you know, this is extremely cool. Uh, actually, I don't remember if he talks about it in that book or if he talks about another book. I take that back. I'm not sure which book it's in, but the charts I had run across. Um, and so I thought, All right, this is really cool. And then one day with the John and Lobo series, I was driving along and I was thinking about what I might do with those characters. And suddenly this, literally this whole plot structure came into my head almost like it was downloaded. And I sat for several hours taking some notes and processing it and realized that I have, it was going to take me 15 to 18 books to do it all. And I was fine with that. I would just start. And I really like the, the Lazarus Long character, even though, you know, near the end he got a little bit silly or Heinlein made him a little silly. But one of the things that I, I liked was history seen through the eyes of a long-lived character. And then I combined the future history notion with something that I uh, really believe, which is that the history textbooks are, are almost never as compelling as things written by people observing and being part of the history, people in that time. And so I wanted to write about an extraordinary character, because I've always been fascinated with Superman-type characters, who was um, living through what will become apparent. It isn't yet in the books. A, a, a crucial moment in time, a few, you know, it's, it's going to end up being about six, seven years, but uh, we're about three and a half years in right now. But there are these crucial things that are happening, and he has lived through all of this. And so I was very much directly uh, influenced by the, the futuristic concept from Heinlein in the construction of this. I would mention that we uh, we have the the future history in the in the new edition laid right out there. Tony, what about as a publisher and editor? Uh, many of our series books have this this sort of uh, notion that it all takes place within a timeline and a universe uh, that's that's laid out. Um, does this just happen, or do you push series authors toward that as an editor and publisher? Well, I think one of my tests for science fiction is uh, the how do you get there from here? Um, you, know, you certainly don't need to lay it all out um, uh, in any, any given novel or uh, even in any given uh, series. But there has to be a, a plausible, for me at least, uh, to enjoy it, set of um, steps so that we can get from what we know to where you want to go in your story. Um, so, so I think that um, in order for that to happen, many authors find it useful to have that kind of uh, future history mapped out for their own satisfaction um, so that they do understand how their future relates to our present. So, uh, and we have we have writers such as Sharon Lee and Steve Miller who have the Leaden books, uh, the Leaden books, David Weber's Honorverse, and in Lois uh, Bujol's sort of nexus of Gateway universe in the Vorkosigan novels. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we Paul Anderson's uh, 
Technic Civilization series. Of course. Seven, seven volumes yeah. available in your local bookstore. It's hard not to do it. Um, <laughs> speaking of future histories, um, what do we have in store, Tony? Uh, what do we look forward to with Bain uh, Heinlein new issues? we have anything upcoming? Uh, we do, actually. Uh, Beyond This Horizon is uh, the next uh, title that we'll be doing uh, with a new Bob Eggleton cover and uh, Bill Patterson um, uh, preface. And uh, I have not yet decided who um, will have the interesting to say um, in the afterward, but I have somebody in mind. So. Hey, we've got, don't we have Waldo and Magic Incorporated uh, in the spring? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I hadn't realized that wasn't already out yet. Um, yes, we do. Um, Waldo um, and Magic Inc., uh, two really interesting um, Heinlein stories, and the celebrity afterword on that is uh, Tim Powers. Oh, great. I really love his work. All right, the book we're discussing is a new combination edition of The Man Who Sold the Moon and Orphans of the Sky by Robert A. Heinlein, with new cover art by Bob Eggleton, and a new afterwards by Mark L. Van Name. It's out now from Bain at booksellers everywhere, as is the entire series of Bain New Heinlein issues. Mark L. Van Name's John and Lobo series, the latest entry is No Going Back, is published by Bain Books and also available at booksellers everywhere. And we want to thank Mark and Tony for being with us to talk about Heinlein. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Tony and Hank. And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible for free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's Star Kingdom of Manticore has reached a truce with one long-standing menace, the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling, and on the edge of its empire, called the Verge, rebellion is brewing. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Hinka, Countess Goldpeak, commands the Royal Manticoran Navy forces in the Talbot Quadrant. This is a region allied with the Star Kingdom, now the Star Empire, and on the borders of the Verge that restive frontier of Solarian space. Though sympathetic to the rebels, Goldpeak must be careful where and when she commits her forces. Stirring the pot is the shadowy Mason alignment, eugenic supremacists who are plotting galactic domination for the establishment of a genetically constructed super-race. The alignment plays a long game, but one of their current goals is turning the Solarian League and the Star Empire of Manticore against each other in an all-out war. For centuries, the Alignment has relied on secrecy and stealth to achieve success, but that may all be about to change. Here is Part 28 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. Chapter 20 What did you say? Albrecht Detweiler stared at his oldest son, and the consternation in his expression would have shocked any of the relatively small number of people who'd ever met him. I said our analysis of what happened at Green Pines seems to have been a little in error. Benjamin Detweiler said flatly, That bastard McBride wasn't the only one trying to defect. Benjamin had had at least a little time to digest the information 
during his flight from the planetary capital of Mendel, and if there was less consternation in his expression, it was also grimmer and far more frightening than his father's. And the way the Mantes are telling it, the son of a bitch sure as hell wasn't trying to stop Kashat and Zilwicky. They haven't said so, but he must have deliberately suicided to cover up what he'd done. Albrecht stared at him for several more seconds. Then he shook himself and inhaled deeply. Go on, he grated. I'm sure there's more and better yet to come. Zilwicky and Kashad are still alive, Benjamin told him. I'm not sure where the hell they've been. We don't have anything like the whole story yet, but apparently they spent most of the last few months getting home. The bastards aren't letting out any more operational details than they have to, but I wouldn't be surprised if McBride's cyber attack is the only reason they managed to get out in the first place. According to the best info we've got, though, they headed toward Haven, not Manticore, when they left, which probably helps explain why they were off the grid so long. I'm not sure about the reasoning behind that either, but whatever they were thinking, what they accomplished was to get Eloise Pritchard in person to Manticore, and she's apparently negotiated some kind of damned peace treaty with Elizabeth. With Elizabeth? We've always known she's not really a lunatic, whatever we may have told the Sollies, Benjamin pointed out. Inflexible as hell sometimes, sure, but she's way too pragmatic to turn down something like that. For that matter, she'd sent Harrington to Haven to do exactly the same thing before Oyster Bay and Pritchard brought along an argument to sweeten the deal, too, in the form of one Erlander Simois, Dr. Erlander Simois, who once upon a time worked in the Gamma Center on the streak drive. Ah, oh, shit, Albrecht said with quiet, heartfelt intensity. Oh, it gets better, Father, Benjamin said harshly. I don't know how much information McBride actually handed Zilwicky and Kishat, or how much substantiation they've got for it, but they got one hell of a lot more than we'd want them to have. They're talking about virus-based nanotech assassinations, the streak drive, and the spider drive, and they're naming names about something called the Mason Alignment. They're also busy telling the Manti Parliament, and I'm sure the Havenite Congress and all the rest of the fucking galaxy, all about the Mason plan to conquer the known universe. In fact... You'll be astonished to know that Secretary of State Arnold Giancola was in the nefarious alignment's pay when he deliberately maneuvered Haven back into shooting at the Mantis. What? Albrecht blinked in surprise. We didn't have anything to do with that. Of course not. But fair's fair. We did know he was fiddling the correspondence. Only after the fact, maybe, when he enlisted Nesbitt to help cover his tracks but we did know. And apparently giving Nesbitt the nanotech to get rid of Gros Claude was a tactical error. It sounds like Usher got at least a sniff of it, and even if he hadn't, the similarities between Gros Claude's suicide and the Webster assassination and the attempt on Harrington are pretty obvious once someone starts looking. So the theory is that if we're the only ones with the nanotech, and if Giancola used nanotech to get rid of Gros Claude, he must have been working for us all along. At least they don't seem to have put Nesbitt into the middle of it all, yet, anyway. 
but their reconstruction actually makes a lot of sense, given what they think they know at this point. Wonderful, Albrecht said bitterly. Well, it isn't going to get any better, Father, and that's a fact. Apparently it's all over the Mantis' news services and sites, and even some of the Solly newsies are starting to pick up on it. It hasn't had time to actually hit Old Terra yet, but it's going to be there in the next day or so. There's no telling what's going to happen when it does, either, but it's already all over Beowulf, and I'll just let you imagine for yourself how they're responding to it. Albrecht's mouth tightened as he contemplated the full, horrendous extent of the security breach. Just discovering Zilwicky and Kashat were still alive to dispute the Alignment's version of Green Pines would have been bad enough. The rest... Thank you, he said after a moment, his tone poison dry. I think my imagination's up to the task of visualizing how those bastards will eat this up. He twitched a savage smile. I suppose the best we can hope for is that finding out how completely we've played their so-called intelligence agencies for the last several centuries will shake their confidence. I'd love to see that bastard Benton Ramirez's shoes reaction, for instance. Unfortunately, whatever we may hope for, what we can count on is for them to line up behind the Matties. For that matter... I wouldn't be surprised to see them actively sign up with the Manticorn Alliance, especially if Haven's already on board with it. Despite the Mantis' confrontation with the League? The words were a question, but Benjamin's tone made it clear he was following his father's logic only too well. Hell, we're the ones who've been setting things up so the League came unglued in the first place, Ben. You really think someone like Beowulf gives a single good goddamn about those fucking apparatchiks in old Chicago? Albrecht snorted contemptuously. I may hate the bastards, and I'll do my damnedest to cut their throats, but whatever else they may be, they're not stupid or gutless enough to let Kolokoltsov and his miserable crew browbeat them into doing one damned thing they don't want to do. You're probably right about that, Benjamin agreed glumly, then shook his head. Now, you are right about that. Unfortunately, it's not going to stop there, Albrecht went on. Just having Haven stop shooting at Manticore is going to be bad enough, but Gold Peak is entirely too close to us for my peace of mind. She thinks too much, and she's too damn good at her job, and too damn willing to draw lines in the sand. That business in Saltash comes to mind, for instance. Father and son looked at one another with sour expressions. Word of Gold Peak's actions in Saltash had reached the Mesa system two and a half tea weeks earlier. They weren't supposed to know about it, since the Frontier Security Courier passing through on his way to Visigoth and Seoul had been sworn to silence. Frontier Security Couriers weren't particularly well paid, however, and Benjamin had been viewing a copy of Governor Duaneus's dispatches even before the dispatch boat had disappeared into the Mesa terminus. She probably hasn't heard about any of this yet, given transit times, Albrecht continued, but she's going to soon enough. And if she's feeling adventurous, or if Elizabeth is, we could have a friggin' Matty fleet right here in Mesa in a handful of tea weeks, one that'll run over anything Mesa has without even noticing. And then there's the delightful possibility that Haven could come after us right along with Gold Peak, 
if they end up signing on as active military allies. The same thought had occurred to me, Benjamin said grimly. As the commander of the Alignment's Navy, he was only too well aware of what the only navies with operational pod-laying ships of the wall and multi-drive missiles could do if they were allied instead of shooting at one another. What do you think the Andes are going to do? He asked after a moment, and his father grated a laugh. Isabel was always against using that nanotech anywhere we didn't have to. It looks like I should have listened. He shook his head. I still think all the arguments for getting rid of Huang were valid, even if we didn't get him in the end. But if the Mandys know about the nanotech and share that with Gustav, I think his usual real politic will go right out the airlock. We didn't just go after his family, Benjamin. We went after the succession, too. And the Andermann dynasty hasn't lasted this long putting up with that kind of crap. Trust me, if he thinks the Mandys are telling the truth, he's likely to come after us himself. For that matter, the Mandys might deliberately strip him off from their alliance. In fact, if they're smart, that's what they ought to do. Get Gustav out of the Sollies line of fire and let him take care of us. It's not like they're going to need his pod layers to kick the SLN's ass. And we just happen to have left the Andy's support structure completely intact, haven't we? That means they've got plenty of MDMs, and if Gustav comes after us while staying out of the confrontation with the League, do you really think any of our friends in old Chicago will do one damn thing to stop him? Especially when they finally figure out what the Mandys are really in a position to do to them? No, Benjamin agreed bitterly. Not in a million years. There was silence for several seconds as father and son contemplated the shattering upheaval in the Mason Alignment's carefully laid plans. All right, Albrecht said finally. None of this is anyone's fault, or at least if it is anyone's fault, it's mine and not anyone else's. You and Colin gave me your best estimate of what really went down at Green Pines, and I agreed with your assessment. For that matter, the fact that Kashat and Zilwicky didn't surface before this pretty damned much seemed to confirm it. And given the fact that none of our internal reports mentioned this Samoas by name, or if they did, I certainly don't remember it anyway, I imagine I should take it all our investigators assumed he was one of the people killed by the Green Pines bombs? Yes. Benjamin's mouth twisted disgustedly. As a matter of fact, the Gamma Center records which mysteriously survived McBride's cyberbomb showed Samoas as on-site when the suicide charge went off. He sighed. I should have wondered why those records managed to survive when so much of the rest of our secure files got wiped. You weren't the only one who didn't think about that his father pointed out harshly. It did disappear him pretty neatly, though, didn't it? And no wonder we were willing to assume he'd just been vaporized. God knows enough other people were. He shook his head. And I still think we did the right thing to use the whole mess to undercut Manticore with the League, given what we knew. But that's sort of the point, I suppose. What's that old saying? It's not what you don't know that hurts you, it's what you think you know that isn't so. It sure is held true in this case, anyway. I think we could safely agree on that, Father. 
The two of them sat silent once more for several moments. Then Albrecht shrugged. Well, it's not the end of the universe, and at least we've had time to get Houdini up and running. But we're not far enough along with it, Benjamin pointed out. Not if the Mantis or the Andes move as quickly as they could. And if the Sollies believe this, the time window's going to get even tighter. Tell me something I don't know. His father's tone was decidedly testy this time, but then he shook his head and raised one hand in an apologetic gesture. Sorry, Ben. No point taking out my pissed-offness on you. And you're right, of course. But it's not as if we never had a plan in place to deal with something like this. He paused and barked a harsh laugh. Well, not something like this so much, since we never saw this coming in our worst nightmares, but you know what I mean. Benjamin nodded and Albrecht tipped back in his chair, fingers drumming on its arms. I think we have to assume McBride and this Samoas between them have managed to compromise us almost completely, insofar as anything either of them had access to is concerned, he said after a moment. Frankly, I doubt they have, but I'm not about to make any optimistic, any more optimistic assumptions at this point. On the other hand, we're too heavily compartmentalized for even someone like McBride to have known about anything close to all the irons we have in the fire. And if Samoas was in the Gamma Center, he doesn't know crap about the operational side. You and Colin and Isabel saw to that. In particular, nobody in the Gamma Center, including McBride, had been briefed about Houdini before Oyster Bay. So unless we want to assume Zilwicky and Kashad have added mind-reading to their repertoire, that's still secure. Probably, Benjamin agreed. Even so, we're going to have to accelerate the process. Worse, we never figured we'd have to execute Houdini under this kind of time pressure. We're going to have to figure out how to hide a hell of a lot of disappearances in a really tight time window, and that's going to be a pain in the ass. Albrecht frowned, his expression thoughtful as he regained his mental balance. There's a limit to how many convenient air car accidents we can arrange. On the other hand, we can probably bury a good many of them in the Green Pines casualty total. Not the really visible ones, of course, but a good percentage of the second tier live in Green Pines. We can probably get away with adding a lot of them to the casualty lists, at least as long as we're not leaving any immediate family or close friends behind. Colin and I will get on that as soon as he gets here. Benjamin agreed. You've probably just put your finger on why we won't be able to hide as many of them that way as we'd like, though. A lot of those family and friends are going to be left behind under Houdini, and if we start expanding the Houdini lists all of a sudden... Point taken. Albrecht nodded. Look into it, though. Anyone we can hide that way will help. For the rest... We're just going to have to be more inventive. He rocked his chair from side to side, thinking hard. Then he smiled suddenly, and there was actually some genuine amusement in the expression. Bitter, biting amusement, perhaps, but amusement. What? Benjamin asked. I think it's time to make use of the ballroom again. I'm not sure I'm following you. I don't care who the Mantis are able to trot out to the Newsies. 
Albrecht replied. Unless they physically invade Mesa and get their hands on a solid chunk of the Onion Corps, a bunch of Sollies, most of them maybe, are still going to think they're lying, especially where the ballroom's concerned. God knows we've spent enough time, effort, and money convincing the League at large that the entire ballroom consists of nothing but homicidal maniacs. For that matter, they've done a lot of the convincing for us because they are homicidal maniacs. So I think it's time, now that these preposterous rumors about some deeply hidden, centuries-long Mason conspiracy have been aired, for the ballroom to decide to take vengeance. The reports are a complete fabrication, of course. At best, they're a gross, self-serving misrepresentation, anyway. So any murderous response they provoke out of the ballroom will be entirely the Manny's fault. Not that they'll ever admit their culpability. And alas, our security here is going to turn out to be more porous than we thought it was. Benjamin looked at him for another moment, then began to smile himself. Do you think we can get away with its having been porous enough for them to have gotten their hands on additional nukes? Well, we know from our own interrogation of that Seki bastard who was working with Zilwicky and Kashat that it was the Sekis who brought them the nuke that went off in the park, Albrecht pointed out. Assuming anyone on their side's concerned with telling the truth, which admittedly I wouldn't be in their place, that little fact may just become public knowledge. In fact, now that I think about it, if Kashat and Zilwicky are telling their side of what happened, they'll probably want to stress that they certainly didn't bring any nukes to Mesa with them. So yes, I think it's possible some of those deeply embittered fanatics, driven to new heights of violence by the Manny's vicious lies, will inflict yet more terroristic nuclear attacks upon us. And if they're going to do that, it's only reasonable, if I can apply that term to such sociopathic butchers, that they'd be going after the upper echelons of Mason society. That could very well work, Benjamin said, eyes distant, as he nodded thoughtfully. Then those eyes refocused on his father, and his own smile disappeared. If we go that way, though... It's going to push the collateral damage way up. Houdini never visualized that, Father. I know it didn't. Albrecht's expression matched his son's. And I don't like it either. For that matter, a lot of the people on the Houdini list aren't going to like it. But messy as it's going to be, I don't think we have any choice but to look at this option closely, Ben. We can't afford to leave any kind of breadcrumb trail. McBride had to know a lot about our military R&D, given his position, but he was never briefed in on Darius, and he was at least officially outside any of the compartments that knew anything about Mannerheim or the other members of the Factor. It's possible he'd gotten some hint about the Factor, though, and he was obviously smart enough to have figured out we had to have something like Darius. For that matter, there are a hell of a lot of Mantis who are smart enough to figure out that we'd never have been able to build the units for Oyster Bay without it. So it's going to be painfully evident to anyone inclined to believe the Mantis claims that the Mason alignment they're talking about would have to have a bolt hole hidden away somewhere. He shook his head. We can't afford to leave any evidence that might corroborate the notion that we simply dive down a convenient rabbit hole— if we have to inflict some collateral damage to avoid that, 
then I'm afraid we're just going to have to inflict the damage. Benjamin looked at him for several seconds, then nodded unhappily. All right, Albrecht said again. Obviously, we're both responding off the cuff at the moment. Frankly, it's going to take a while, for me at least, to get past the simple shock quotient and be sure my mind's really working, and the last thing we need is to commit ourselves to anything we haven't thought through as carefully as possible. We need to assume time's limited, but I'm not about to start making panic decisions that only make the situation worse, so we're not making any decisions until we've had a chance to actually look at this. You say Colin's on his way? Yes, sir. Then as soon as he gets here, the three of us need to go through everything we've got at this stage on a point-by-point -point basis. Should I assume that with your usual efficiency, you've brought the actual dispatches about all of this with you? I figured you'd want to see them yourself, Benjamin said with a nod and reached into his tunic to extract a chip folio. One of the joys of having competent subordinates, Albrecht said in something closer to a normal tone. In that case, he went on, holding out one hand for the folio while his other hand activated his terminal. Let's get started reviewing the damage now. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 28, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Hank Davis, Laura Haywood Corey, David F. Sherryrad, Christopher Chifani, Koki Daniel, Jameson Turner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm awesome. And podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a rousing round of Aaron Copeland's fanfare for the common man stuck in our heads for weeks on end, and a sky full of puppies to author Mark L. Van Name and publisher Tony Weiskopf for their excellent insights on Robert A. Heinlein. Please join us here next time at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 